the cowled lad of Hilton, Goblin or Ghost. Welcome to episode 7 of a Northern Counties Paranormal Podcast, hosted by Within the Boggart Wood. Medieval Hilton Castle in Sunderland is home to one of the northeast's most famous legends, that of the Cold Lad or Cowled Lad. Originally, the entity that became known as the Cowled Lad was said to be a brownie, a mischievous goblin that haunted the castle. This form of brownie goblin in Northumbrian folklore seems to have been the source of J.K. Rowling's House Elves in her Harry Potter book series, wherein the gift of clothing secures the brownie's freedom from service. Surtees, writing in 1820, and Henderson, writing in 1879, described the being as seldom seen but was heard almost every night in the kitchen by the servants. If the kitchen had been left tidy, the cow lad would turn it to chaos, and if it had been left untidy, the servants would venture in after the brownie had been busy, only to find everything had been ordered and left tidy. Legend says that the kitchen hand soon grew tired of his antics, and left a green hood and cloak out for him as a gift. Delighted with the gift of clothing, the brownie cried, Here's a cloak and there's a hood. The cow lad of Hilton will do no more good. The creature was then said to have vanished with dawn's light, never to bother the castle folk again. However, this is not the end of the story, as the cow lad legend is a peculiar one, combining two very different tales into one under the same name. Both Surtees and Hennison noted that another origin for the cow lad, beyond the brownie theory, was said to be the ghost of a murdered staple hand named Roger Skelton. The boy was said to have been murdered by the Baron of Hilton, in a fit of rage over not preparing his horse when ordered to do so. In his rage, the tale tells, the Baron stabbed the boy with a pitchfork, then realising what he'd done, hastily hid the body in a pond, triggering the haunting. Now, in some cases, legend such as this one is actually based on historical events. And in this case, Roger Skelton actually existed. A coroner's report, dated to the 3rd of July 1609, reported that an inquest into Skelton's death during September 1608 showed that the boy's death was accidental, with Robert Hilton, the brother of the Baron, accidentally hitting the boy with a scythe during the harvest. Hilton was pardoned and acquitted by Bishop Jameson. It does seem that the paranormal activity reported at the castle began soon after, though. But by the beginning of the 20th century, the sightings in the castle had almost ceased, though the ghost of the boy could often still be heard around the castle. Leighton, writing in 1910, claimed that Hilton Castle maintained Skeltel's room, but it was never used. In the mid-20th century, modern housing encroached on the Cowl Lad's territory. On the 16th of May 1953, the Sunderland Daily Echo and Shipping Gazette published a short article on the family who moved into the first house on the new Canterbury Road. The article was entitled Defying the Cowled Lad. There were happy scenes in the Richardson's home in Cooper Street, Roker, when notice arrived from Sunderland Housing Department that the family had been chosen to occupy the first house on the new estate at Castletown. For hadn't they been doing without a bathroom for 17 years, and hadn't they put up with living in a three-room upper flat, when really they needed an extra room? But then up spoke the youngest child, 12-year-old Iris. Castletown Estate, but isn't that in the stamping ground of the Hilton Ghost? It was, and Iris's point prompted family debate. Result? 
The Richardsons decided to face the ghost of the cowed lad of Hilton because the new house in Canterbury Road had so many adventures to offer, and today they moved into their new home. Not afraid, said 47-year-old Mrs Ada Richardson. Let the cowed lad do his worst. We are not afraid of him. Then she went off to fix up a bed in the room from the window which can be seen the 11th century Hilton Castle, the cowled lad's home. Helping to arrange the furniture were the rest of the family, 48-year-old John, the father, who was a coal hewer at Weirmouth Colliery, 20-year-old John, a clerk for Short Brothers Limited, 19-year-old Robert, shop assistant in Sunland, and Iris. First impressions of their new home? Wonderful, say the Richardsons. In 1970, reports tell of a miner heading home past the ruins of the castle after a night shift when he heard his name be called and he turned to look at the ruin. He spied a figure which suddenly appeared next to him on the path and that point he took to his heels and ran home. But note that the figure kept pace all the way but stopped at his front door. He watched it for a couple of hours where it stood motionless before disappearing. On the corner of Caithness and Cockermouth Road, a pub named after Hilton's famous ghost opened in 1963, and according to the authors Melanie Warren and Tony Wells in their BBC North book Ghosts of the North, the cowed lad decided that the haunting the pub was preferable to the ruins of the castle. Numerous stories about low-key poltergeist activity were reported during the time the pub was open, from items moving or going missing only to reappear again, to strange smells and the feeling of being watched. The pub cellar seemed to be the focus of the activity, with reports that animals such as dogs would refuse to enter the cellar, and a cleaner reported the frequent finding of the wet footprints of a child. The cowed lad appeared to have company though, as visitors to the pub also reported a man dressed in grey that would be sitting in the bar and would simply vanish. Story number two of this episode is something a little different. Apologies for any loss in audio quality as I'm currently recording this on a dictaphone in the middle of a sunny field in County Durham. The reason I'm here is that I'm currently looking to confirm the presence of a section of Deer Street Roman Road, which doesn't appear to be on the alignment of the Ordnance Survey says it is. So the question arises here on how do I portray an archaeological site on an audio platform. Not an easy task, so just listen carefully at the sound of scraping over stone and I'll include photographs on the main website episode page. For those that don't know, Deer Street was the main Roman road that led from York all the way up to Corbridge where it crossed the Stain Gate, then reached into Scotland as far as the Antonine Wall. A lot of folk haven't heard of the Antonine Wall. The Antonine Wall lay approximately 100 miles north of Hadrian's Wall and was built later. It was a much more basic structure with a majority built of turf on a stone foundation. But I digress. Deer Street ran for some 226 miles or 364 kilometres and along its length you'd think that ghost stories would thrive. But it's been difficult to find many for this story, with some of the reports having little to do with Romans. The road did continue to be used for centuries after Rome withdrew from Britain. In fact, there were reports of various sections still in good working order in the 18th century, and of course there are many stretches of the road that continue to be used today, simply with modern road surfaces laid over it. So here's four reports of ghosts along the route of Deer Street. This is a subject I will continue researching, so if anyone listening has any stories to tell, please get in touch. Number one. There have been reports of a cloaked figure in black striding along the line of Deer Street by True Green Roman Fort in Northumberland, only to vanish before onlookers startled eyes. Number two. Between Rochester and Whitton Edge, there have been reports of Roman soldiers marching along the Deer Street route. Number three. 
In Riding Mill, west of Corbridge in Northumberland, Deer Street allegedly runs directly to the west of the Wellington Hotel. The pub is allegedly haunted by the spectre of Anne Armstrong. Now for those who have listened to episode 2 when I detailed the Witches of Allensford, that name may be familiar, as Anne appears in a number of historical records accusing her neighbours of witchcraft during the late 17th century. The Wellington Hotel was originally constructed as Riding House in the mid-17th century, and Anne accused three women of practising witchcraft at the house, which was examined at the Morpeth Quarter Sessions in 1673. The case was dismissed, but Anne, who worked as a servant girl in Riding House, was allegedly found hung in the scullery soon afterwards, and has said to have haunted the building ever since. Moving on to number four, we have the Merry Monk Pub in Bishop Auckland, which also dates to the 17th century with a line of Deer Street running past it. The cellars of the pub are said to be haunted by a monk, with reports of sudden drops in temperature as well as the feeling of being watched often reported. The apparition of the monk is thought to be the unfortunate soul of one of the monks that allegedly brewed mead and transported it to Auckland Castle via a hidden tunnel. One of the stories that has developed about the monk did make my eyes roll a little, that of the monk being flogged and burnt at the stake by Roman soldiers from the nearby Roman fort, hence the reason that he haunts the area. Looking into the story, however, it is undoubtedly the product of an alleged medium from a paranormal investigation with an active imagination of poor sense of history. As for Roman soldiers to have murdered the poor medieval monk, they'd have to have mastered the act of time travel, and while the Romans were remarkable engineers, I don't think they managed to hurl their forces 1,000 years into the future. And on that note, I'd best get back to work. As I've said before, if anyone has any tales to share of the weird and wonderful along the route of Deer Street, please get in touch. All contact details can be found in the episode description and on the main website. Today's third story deals with Crook Hall in County Durham. At the time of publishing this podcast, Crook Hall and Gardens are the property of the National Trust. The hall is a Grade 1 listed building. The core of the hall we can visit today was originally constructed in the 14th century, with the building extended into a manor house during the Jacobean period and with the Georgian wing added by the Hopper family post-1736. In 1928 it was bought by the Castle family and in 1995 by the Bells who opened the house and gardens as a wedding venue. Prior to the Bells taking on the hall, it was owned by the Horgood family. In 2020, however, the business went bankrupt, the fault placed on the COVID-19 lockdowns. The Hall and Gardens were then acquired by the National Trust in March 2022. The Hall is allegedly haunted by a white lady, who is said in life to have been the niece of Cuthbert Billingham, who owned the estate in the mid-17th century. As with many such stories, Lord Billingham was said in the ghost law to have been a man of great rage. Historically, he was also known as such, and spent some time in the local jail after disabling the local water supply. He is said to have murdered his niece during such an episode. The white lady is said to walk down the Jacobean staircase in the hallway every 20th of December, which is St Thomas's Eve, marking the day of her untimely demise. In a completely unrelated tale, St Thomas's Eve is also said to mark the appearance of the ghost of a murdered woman between nearby Cradlewell and Neville's Cross. With reference to Crook Hall, however, there have been a number of sightings of her drifting around the Jacobean area of the hall and tales reminiscent of Northumbrian silkies. It was local common knowledge that in 1989, Mary Horgood, then the owner, reported being asleep in bed, only to be awoken at 2am sharp to see the figure of a woman robed in a long dress 
and surrounded by an aura of light, hence the white lady description. Other ghostly reports, mostly collected during the Bell's ownership of the hall, include ghostly children being seen and heard playing in the grounds, and an old man sleeping in a chair in the hall. As well as the haunted stairs, the hall also sports a haunted nook, said by the Bells to be haunted by the spirit of a murdered soldier. To summarise the alleged paranormal activity in the hall, we can say, number one, the White Lady, a full apparition said to be seen each 20th of December, dressed in a long dress and surrounded by light, sometimes also heard or seen flitting through the hall. Number two, children. The sounds of children playing in the grounds have been reported when no kids are present. Number three, the sleeping man. An old man has been noted sleeping in the hall, again when no one is actually there. And number four, the soldier's nook. The nook is said to house cold spots and chills associated with a murdered soldier. The Bells used the ghost law of the hall to their advantage, marketing the place as haunted with ghost tours and attracting a number of paranormal investigation groups. Now, back in 2004, I was lucky to be invited to join a daytime investigation at the hall as a guest of a group named Avalon Skies. While there was no activity to report on the day, it did allow for some nice photography, which I've included some of the images from in the main podcast description on the website. Today's fourth story is quite a short one. One of Newcastle-upon-Tyne's least known hauntings is that of 66 Granger Street, now Cream's Cafe, on the western corner of the Big Market. Granger Street gets its name from the development of Granger Town in the 1830s, financed by businessman Richard Granger and designed by the architect John Dobson. The building in question, though, wasn't constructed until the 1870s, when Granger Street West was constructed, demolishing houses, shops and a pub. Records show that the new building was first occupied by a hatter, then by Manfield and Sons who were boot and shoemakers, with branches also in Paris, London, Leeds, Manchester and other cities. The stories of the haunting of this building suggest that its ghostly occupant dates potentially from this period, described as a small boy dressed in Victorian clothing complete with a ribboned hat. Tales from the late 20th century, when the premises was occupied by a branch of Pizza Hut, tell of the little boy just quietly appearing in the basement level and watching, without moving, the dishwashers in action. Then he'd simply disappear as quickly and quietly as he appeared. Today's From the Archive story comes from the Newcastle Evening Chronicle, dated Wednesday 22nd of October 1913. It takes the form of a letter to the editor and is entitled Ghosts and Occult Hooliganism. Sir, is the nipper that has thrown many persons in West Tyndale into a state of excitement really a mischievous spirit, or what Mr Elliot O'Donnell, in his interesting book Byways of Ghostland, calls an occult hooligan? Mr O'Donnell says, Deducing from my own and other people's experiences, there exists a distinct type of occult phenomena whose sole occupation is in boisterous orgies and in making manifestations purely for the sake of causing annoyance. To this phantasm the Germans have given the name Poltergeist, which in former of my works I have classified it as a Vagrarian order of elemental. It is this form of the superphysical perhaps that up to the present time has gained the greatest credence. It has been known in all ages and all countries. Who, for example, has not heard of the famous Stockwell ghost, 
that caused such a sensation in 1772, and of which Mrs. Crowe gives a detailed account in her Night Side of Nature, or again of the Black Lion Lane Bayswater Ghost, referred to many years ago in the Morning Post, or of the Epworth Ghost, that so unceasingly tormented the Wesley family, or of the Demon of Tedworth, that gave John Mompesson and his family no peace, and of countless other well-authenticated and recorded instances of this same type of occult phenomena. The poltergeists in the above-mentioned cases were never seen, only felt and heard, but in what a disagreeable and often painful manner. To quote another instance of this kind of haunting, Professor Schupar at Gresson in Upper Hesse was for six years persecuted by a poltergeist in the most unpleasant manner. Stones were sent whizzing through closed rooms in all directions, breaking windows but hurting no one. His books were torn to pieces. The lamp by which he was reading was removed to a distant corner of the room, and his cheeks were slapped, and slapped so incessantly that he could get no sleep. There seems to be no limit short of grievous bodily injury, and even that limit has occasionally been overstepped to poltergeist hooliganism. After recounting some of his own experiences, Mr. O'Donnell says, I am not the only person whom poltergeists visit. Judging from my correspondence and the accounts I see in the letters of various psychical research magazines, they patronise many people. Their modus operandi, covering a wide range, is always boisterous. Have any of your readers been annoyed by poltergeists, I wonder? Yours, etc. Signed simply, Borderland. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. More information can be found on the website at thebogatwood.uk, including links to social media and Patreon. Until next time, have a good week and stay safe.